Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and welcome to Battle Walks. We are back. It's the first episode of Season 4 We've missed being away. There's so much stuff to talk about. Joining me, like always, to do it is Pete Smith. Pete, we're back. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Great to be back. Seems like a long time. It, ha- it has been a while, mate. A lot's been happening in that time. Most of it, fantastic. You've been busy leading a lot of tours, which is the main reason that our break has been extended. And isn't that great news compared to where we were a couple of years ago? <laughs> Down in the yeah, dumps, miserable, nothing yeah, to say. My garden... Yeah, my gardening leave has finished. My garden's <laughs> not finished, but my gardening leave has finished. Back on quite, the battlefield again. Quite literally gardening leave. You were spending your time <laughs> is, in yeah, the garden. Exactly. Yeah. I was. Uh, That's good. Yeah. Let's not mention the dreaded COVID word ever again and no. uh, just look forward no. to the future. But it is an exciting time coming up now. We're back on the battlefields. I mean, it's currently winter time, so there's not a lot of touring going on, but we're recording this in February, so it's a little bit frosty over there still, but it won't be long before it'll be Anzac Day. We'll be back on the road. Uh, all the tours it's- happening for a busy, busy year. Yep, it's bloody freezing, Matt, is the technical term. Um, so we still got frost this morning, and uh, yeah, I was out uh, having a bit of a walk in the fields uh, yesterday, and uh, yeah, very frosty, very uh, very cold, uh, uh, completely wrapped up. Uh, I couldn't do uh, any kind of podcasting because my mouth's covered over with scarves because it's so <laughs> flipping freezing. But uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's a nice time to be actually out on the battlefields because you can walk everywhere, ploughed fields, rock hard. You can walk on top of the plough uh, plough lines and. Uh, the furrows and so yeah it's it's, uh, it's a good time to have a have a wander i always like this time of the year because no leaves on the trees it means you get uh, uh, surprising views views that you don't normally get in the summer because the when the trees are all in leaf it uh, restricts what you can see so yeah it's not a bad time to explore the battlefield are you ever tempted to go and dig a hole in your garden pete and sit in it in the mud and try and try and relate firsthand to what the soldiers went through in the winter <laughs> 
No, but 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 digging a hole in the garden was something that I fantasized about many many years ago when I when I came here because we realized that there was there was a trench line in the back garden it runs through the back garden. So my myself and my uh, my oldest son who at the time was around about 16 we got our picks and shovels and started digging in we organized a little area and we thought we'll pretend we're gardening but really we'll keep on going down and uh, started doing uh, we'd watch Time Team a British television program about uh, uh, archaeology we thought here we are we're off we go and after about a foot down in the old school a meter down uh, we hit solid concrete and what we realized i thought german bunker it's got to be a gem no it wasn't a german bunker it was part of an old barn that used to be there and it had a great big concrete floor that the the cunning devils had just put a layer of soil over the top and called it a garden but beneath it was uh, was a uh, this great big concrete plinth so it it stopped us before we'd even started Disappointing, but luckily you don't have to go far to find uh, the evidence of war where you are, Pete. So in the heart of yeah. the Somme. So how how is the Somme? How are there people out and about? Again, I know it's winter time, but it, yeah, have people come the, back. Are there visitors back there? Is you yeah. know how is it? Generally speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, the people that come at this time of the year are the people that like literally walking the ground, whether it for, uh, be for looking at for the odd souvenir in, in the fields, or whether it, it be to literally follow a trench line. If you want to get out on the ground and actually follow a trench line, then the winter's the best time to do it well so yeah few few people about yeah few people about well we're going to be doing something um well you are going to be doing something very similar to that uh this year in 20 late in 2023 pete our battle tactics tour which takes you out walking the ground a little bit of housekeeping stuff to to remind people that if you do want to do this if you want to walk the ground with pete um or another one of our expert historians you you can do it and with, with things coming up like the rugby world cup is coming up in september and october in france Perfect opportunity to tack on a tour and, and head up to the battlefields. And we've got a number of short tours, four-day tours, which bolt on very well and are designed around the, the schedule of games. So if you want to head over uh, during the Rugby World Cup, watch a bit of rugby and walk the ground with Pete, you, you certainly can. And also that battle tactics tour I mentioned, if you really want to get out about and walk the ground and understand what the soldiers went through, this is quite a unique tour, um, walking in the footsteps of battalions across the battlefield. And that's, uh, that's in October uh, 2023 so pete lots of opportunities to get out and walk the ground yeah well i'm looking forward to doing the uh, the battle tactics uh, tour because it's uh, it's it's walking and obviously being picked up by a coach in between the walks but trying to get two walks in a day um and uh yeah i think it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting really a, a development from the coaches and from just going from a to b and doing a little bit of walking to actually be be walking every day throughout the whole tour i think we're actually giving the people one day off um so we can put our feet up a bit and have a few beers uh, but uh, yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to uh, to taking people on a, a dedicated walking tour as you said where we're going to every day on every walk we will be following an individual battalion um or unit uh, and discussing what they did on that day so yeah it's going to be good fun it's going to be a great tour so visit battlefields.com.au for uh, for all that information and our uk listeners as well even though the tour is predominantly designed for australians it's just going to be a great experience to get out and walk the first world war battlefields with pete smith so i think there's already uh, one or two uh, british people that are booked on the tour so come and join us if you want to go on that tour that's our battle tactics on the western front tour and as we said if you're heading over for the rugby world cup Jump on one of our Explorer tours and spend a few days on the battlefields. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Um, speaking also of battlefields, other things we've got going on. My book, Walking with the Anzacs, that I first... Well, I wrote in 2005 and it first came out in 2007. I'm doing an updated version, again, with so many Aussies heading over to the battlefields. Look out for that in bookshops from July onwards, Walking with the Anzacs, a fully updated version. And it's 
anyone that's read it recently will know it's it's overdue for an update because there's so much interesting new things to see on the battlefield. So look out for Walking with the Anzacs uh, when that comes out in July 2023. And Pete, one of the key battlefields, both on the Battle Tactics Tour and in that book, Walking with the Anzacs, is the iconic Australian battlefield of Pozier, which is what we're covering today. And um, many months ago, we did a walk a battle walk in the approach route to Pozier, which was fantastic and actually one of our most popular episodes. But this one, we're actually going to walk the battlefield itself. And, GP, where do we start with the Battle of Pozier? Just one of the most important actions Australians have been involved in. Yep, uh, just just a bit of revision. Uh, I looked up when we did that uh, approach uh, podcast. It was podcast 23, and it went out on the 6th of May, 2021. That was a while ago. So, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, getting back into the swing of things. Nice to be back in uh, having a look at Poisier again and continuing on, even though it's uh, a few years since we uh, since we covered it. So, well, Poisier is one yeah, of those ones, iconic. Pete. I think it's just it's just so obvious. Like it's it's just such an iconic battlefield. It's a fantastic battlefield for walking. And so, yeah. I think we always said, "Oh, we will get to Poisier and do it." But it's one of those ones yeah. that's so obvious we, 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 we let other things get in the way first. But I'm really happy that we're revisiting it. For, for me, it's one of the most significant places to be on the Western Front. It's, you know, we'll, we'll discuss a few things that have changed in recent years which have impinged on that a little bit. But it is a, just an iconic spot and, uh, you know, a, an amazing place to be. Yeah, it, uh, it, it is. Uh, in fact, we talk about it quite often in some of the other podcasts. It just pops up every now and then, which led me to have to double check to make sure that we hadn't actually done it. I had to go through all of our podcasts to make sure we hadn't done it because some of the things you will have heard uh, before, uh, they come up in conversations. But uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to be doing it. And I, and I think I feel that what I want to do is point out what there is to see in the village. And I think that's the important thing. You know, when, when you visit the village, you can read the history, you can look at the stories of the battalions and the men that fought there. But it's also nice to know what is there actually in the village that we can actually look at. We'll do one of your excellent potted histories shortly about the, the Battle of Posey and what it was all about. But the, the, the quick summation is this is the most costly battle in Australian military history from any war on any battlefield. Uh, 23,000 casualties in six weeks. Just staggering, staggering casualties in an area that's pretty small. It's not, it's not a very big area. We're, we're not going to walk dozens of kilometres today on this walk. We're going to take it all in in a relatively short amount of time. Pete, just tell me, for you as a British person, you know, when you first came over to the Somme, I assume your focus was on those 1st of July sites and, and the, you know, the British achievements on the on the western front what was it like for you the first time you went to Pozier? did you did you know what to expect when you went there did you know the story of the australians at Pozier? shall i lie um no i i don't suppose i was aware i was aware australians were there i was aware that they'd fought at Pozier. i suppose at that period i had not really read a single book on the australian effort uh, a standalone book all of my books would have been on the general history of the battle of the somme um, of which australians of course are mentioned all the time but it, but in the bigger picture and it's it is a big picture i mean it, it's a very big picture the battle of the somme so uh, and the brits tend to concentrate on the first of july just because of the the appalling 60,000 casualties that that uh, uh, take place on that um, uh, on that first of july so, and it is 
it's certainly if you're interested in the pals battalions and i think i'd uh, i think I'd, uh, I, we, should, we should do a uh, a specialist podcast on on pals battalions we've touched on them before but i think i'd like to expand upon the pals battalion story um and so uh, i think you know for for your average brit if he knows anything about the pals battalions the cities that raise their own, own battalions leeds manchester hull Sheffield, um, lots of northern big cities raising their own battalions. It's the loss of those battalions on the on the first day, and, and the true horror of that 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 captures your imagination and uh, and holds you there. So for a lot of Brits, they they struggle to get beyond the first of July. It is our I've always described it. It's our Anzac Day. If you were looking at a, a similarity, then you have to say that for Australia, it's Anzac Day and uh, and the fighting on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Well, mate, I think in, in many ways the fact that you um, potentially went to Pozier without knowing the story, I mean, that, that makes it even more profound in a lot of ways because it is a site that tells a story. I don't want to get too arty-farty about it, but it, it is a site that I, I think even when I went there the first time as an Aussie, knowing the story, there's just something about yeah. it when you get there. It's so shocking and there's, there's those tangible reminders of what went on. And the fact that it is so different, that the, the destroyed village has been rebuilt and yet just yeah. you can see the little pieces that indicate the horrors that just went on there. And when you stand out in those fields and know just of the horror that went on around you, it's, it's there's something that just really moves you on that battlefield in a way that other battlefields haven't quite done for me. So it's it's a it's a really extraordinary place and obviously well worth visiting. Yeah. I, I think the other thing is, well, uh, as well, is because it's one of the high points of the Battle of the Somme, if not the highest point. Um, it's, uh, you mean you know, physically, it's don't of, you? Not in terms of achievement. I do. <laughs> yes, I don't. Yeah, uh, yeah good point. Um, no, I mean, literally physically. Uh, and so the, the views are quite spectacular from places like the windmill and the places we're going to be talking about, the, the windmill and the first Div Memorial and, and Gibraltar. You know, you get really good views. And so you need that when you're exploring a battlefield for the very first time. You need that height and that, and those maps to stand there and to look uh, and get a feel of the battlefield. So yeah, that's the other reason to go there. Even even if you knew nothing about the Australian experience, you're looking for the high ground and the view that gives you a better feel of the battle, and you get that from uh, Poitiers. And it is really part of that loop of the first of July, nineteen sixteen. That that Somme loop. You know, you can go from there. You can head off to Mouquet Farm and the Tietbar Memorial, and yeah, and and and, ta- and telling the, taking the whole story in a very um, small area. Um, but let's talk but, specifically yeah, about... It, well, go yeah. on, Pete. Uh, sorry, that is the most important thing, I suppose. It is the central point on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. That road, the Roman road that runs between Albert and Bapaume, no, that, that is the central axis on the battlefield, and Poitiers is the highest point on that central axis. So it is literally the epicentre of the fighting. Well, tell us how the Australians came to be there in the first place, Pete, in July 1916. Yep, so story of the of the Australians arriving, coming from Egypt uh, on on their uh, trains from Marseille up through Egypt into the nursery areas, so around Diamond Tears on the uh, the Belgian-French uh, uh, border, learning their trade of the very different being on the Western Front, and then uh, the 1st Division, the 2nd Division, and the 4th Division being moved across onto the Somme battlefield uh, in preparation for the, the fighting of the Battle of the Somme. Um, Overview of the Battle of Somme, just very briefly. It's a battle that's been designed to um, to put pressure on the on the Germans and to force force them back. That's the whole exercise. The, the whole Great War is about trying to force the Germans back by, by behind their own borders. But more importantly, it's to help the French at Verdun, who are under extreme pressure, struggling, and they need a, a, another offensive to open up so that the Germans will be 
their eye will basically move off the ball. They will go across to uh, to the Somme to try and stop the British advance, bringing their reserves with them. And it's going to work. That that is uh, that is going to be successful. Uh, the Battle of the Somme will run from the first of July to the 18th of November. So it's a very long battle and there are parts of it all identified separately and the fighting at Poitiers being one of those the, those uh, those parts. Just as a matter of interest, Poitiers was an objective of the 1st of July, that first day. The 8th Division, British 8th Division, has been tasked to take Poitiers on that first day and they barely get out of their trenches. They're, they're uh, under uh, such terrible uh, machine gun fire and we won't go into the whole 1st of July, another podcast necessary if we haven't covered it. I don't think we have for the 1st of July. Um, <clears throat> so yes, so it, it's uh, Australians eventually brought in to continue that slow drive up the ridges um, and they are brought in on that central access for an attack that will take place on the 23rd of July. So 23 days later, they will go into action uh, at Poitiers to take the highest points uh, on the battlefield. From an Australian perspective, Pete, I always think it's interesting that we look at these battles we tend to look at them in isolation, that we we think of them as quite separate events that we, we look at. But in reality, this only happened, what, four days after the disaster at Fromel, for example. So, you know, the, it's pretty interesting how we talk, the, the, the Australians were fighting in different sectors at different times, and there was so much going on in this period of the war that, uh, you know, we think of Fromel as quite isolated from what was going on at Pozier, but the, the attack at Pozier went in four days after the attack yeah. had taken the disaster had taken place at Fromel, which we've covered in a, in another podcast as well. But um, I think it's also interesting, Pete, the the fighting as it went on in Pozier, just just horrific. The first division went in and slogged their way through and captured the ruined village, but then they were so decimated by by casualties they were removed, and the second division came in and then pushed the line out beyond the village to the OG one and OG two, two very famous trench lines that ran behind the village. And then when the 2nd Division was exhausted, the 4th Division came in and pushed the line further again. And they just kept re- rotating these divisions into the mincing mm. machine that was Pozier and just leaving scores and scores, thousands of dead and wounded in their wake. Just some of the most horrific fighting the Australians went through in the entire war. Yeah, um, and uh, we'll be covering the memorial that uh, is at the Wimbledon site that basically ex- uh, it, it says it all. Um, and I think it's interesting as you know, the, the bigger picture, if we continue to look at the bigger picture, Poitiers is just one dot, one village uh, amongst lots of villages where men are dying doing exactly the, sa- uh, the same thing. Um, it's just that the... Poitiers is such an important location because of its height. That It's height again. The Germans had cleverly created these positions um, in what I always describe as the new border of Germany. This is very much part of the new border of Germany and they are not being forced off the Somme ridges and key to it all is Poitiers because of, because of its height and the windmill especially and the windmill's the clue. There was a windmill there and it's there because of the, the height and the, and the wind that it got up on that, uh, on that top of that ridge. So it's, uh, it's an I- important location but we must remember that Australians are not fighting alone. On, on that day, on the 23rd of, uh, of July in 1916, there is fighting all along the line to push the push the uh, the Germans back. Yeah, very good point. And the Canadians actually fought uh, uh, later in the campaign here as well. So there's a lot of Canadian influence too in the immediate area. So we should never forget our friends from New Zealand and and South Africa and everywhere. This is this is hallowed ground for for most of the Dominion uh, countries as they were at the time. Well, that's great, Pitch. Shall we start walking? We're going to walk. We're going to start um, at a place called Dead Man's Road, and this is this ties in ni- uh, neatly with our previous podcast on the Posier approach route 
because this is where we ended the, the walk on Dead Man's Road, uh, just as we get to the village of Pozier. So we're going to start our walk where we finished off from the last one. So, Pete, why Dead Man's Road? Why is it called that? <laughs> well, there's a lot. There's a lot of kind of uh, we don't know. Like a lot of these things, we're not quite sure why uh, the strong point at Gibraltar is called Gibraltar. Well, there are lots of various uh, ideas of why why it's called Gibraltar. I always, and I don't know if this is right or not, but it's not called Dead Man's Road on the early trench map. So the early trench maps, the uh, the briefings for the attack, Dead Man's Road is not called Dead Man's Road. But famously, there is a dead man lying at the top of Dead Man's Road who is very well written up um, in the 2nd Battalion War Diary. Do you know this story, Matt? Do you, no, I don't do think I do. Story? Yeah, so there's, so in the 2nd battalion's war diary of the first division there was a man lying on the road literally at the the top of dead man's road on the main road it's a roman road i've already mentioned it running from alberta back home and he's a runner and he's lying on the road and his arm is up in the air and it's holding his his message that he's trying to pass so in other words as he died as he was hit by machine gun fire trying to cross the road he raised his arm so that somebody else could take the message for him. Now, this is very well uh, written up um, in the war diary of the 2nd Battalion, including an illustration showing exactly where he is on the road, his colour stripes, how he was wearing his uniform, and they can tell that he's a runner from the 2nd Battalion. And the reason why it's well written up is because they're trying to figure out who he is, because they think he should get an award. Um, and so you get this whole account of uh, of of this this dead man um, uh, lying on the road. So whether that's how Dead Man's Road got its name or not, I'm not sure. But it's just a very moving story, uh, and it can be found in the as I say, it's free to access. If you go and have a look at the Australian War Memorials records of the battalions, um, look at uh, the second uh, battalion, and look at the 23rd of July. Uh, and you'll find a full account of uh, of the of the dying runner or the dead runner at the top of Dead Man's Road. So, I, but I have no idea if that's why it's called Dead Man's Road. It's certainly a moving story, Pete. And I do recall now that the only time I've heard that was actually standing on that ground with you when we did the signature tour last year. Oh, right. um, and uh, it's a very moving story, and it made it even more moving to actually be on the ground. But Dead Man's Road is a sunken road that that comes at right angles to the main road through the village. And this was the way the troops came into the village. This was where they came in. This is where they assembled. This is where the communication trenches led off from, off to the front line. And it was also the spot where we touched on this in the Approach March podcast, where men who had been repelled in earlier attacks would tend to congregate in this area because they would move back until they reached the point where they were safe again and this this sunken road provided the area. So it was always an area that was pretty busy and... um, I think I said this to you, Pete, as well in uh, in the in the podcast, the last podcast we did. That I've always found so much stuff there because it was an area where troops just congregated, whether they were heading up to the line to attack or on their way back. Uh, this was a, sort of the, either the last point of safety as they were going forward, or the first proper point of safety as they were coming back. So this is where they tended to dump gear and 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 and, and meet up with their mates and, and and come together. And it was a, it was an iconic spot on the battlefield. I'm sure there were plenty of officers that said, "Okay, let's you know rendezvous in." Dead Man's Road. So it's a, it's an interesting spot walking those fields on either side of the road. You, you usually find quite a bit of stuff left over from the war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating spot. It's what I love about the battlefields too, Pete. It's a little sunken road. There's nothing, you know, you could walk past it a thousand times and not know there's anything to note about it. It's just a little country road, but it's uh, such a significant part of the story. Um, opposite. Well, what are we going to do next, Pete? We're actually, we're, we're not going to go opposite left. to the main no, site. We're, 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 
No, we're going to go left and do a, a, go down the main road, the Roman road, heading towards uh, Albert, just to go and have a quick look at the Poitiers uh, British Cemetery and the Poitiers Memorial, which are down the road on the right-hand side. But before we get there, on the left-hand side, and this is missed by almost everybody, there's a, a memorial to the King's Royal uh, Rifle Corps, um, and it's their memorial for their, their battalions who fought and died in France. So there's one in Belgium as well. This one is in France. It's set back off the road, very uh, in between a couple of houses, and you just don't see it. It's a, a, a stone a plinth uh, with bollards around it and chains, and then a little obelisk in the uh, in, in the in the middle. And it lists all of their battalions, uh, thirteen battalions in total that fought uh, on the Western Front in in, in France. Um, the words on it. I just have to quickly look at that. To the memory of officers and men who gave their lives on the battlefield of France, fighting in the cause of liberty and justice. So it's their generic memorial for the King's Royal Rifle Corps, um, and uh, yeah, well worth just having a look at because it's missed by so many, so many people. You need to be on foot. You cannot park a car alongside it, so you do need to be on foot. Just on that memorial, Pete. Any specific reason they chose Posier? Is there a strong connection with that unit and Posier? Um, they did. They fought at Poitiers. I think it was the second battalion that fought uh, at Poitiers. Um, but I think it was just uh, like a lot of battalions. Uh, I also often think the tank corps memorial is not exactly in the right place on the main road. It's always a good place to put your memorial. And I'm sure at one time it it stood out. But actually, there's a, a few buildings now behind it, so you can actually not notice it completely. I think uh, at the period, and I've seen photographs of it when it was first built, there was nothing behind it. It overlooked uh, a landscape that they that uh, various battalions had fought over over the the whole period of the Great War. Um, but I think it's the Second battalion. I may be wrong. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that. But um, I, I think it's the second battalion who fought close uh, close by. And we shouldn't forget too that it was British units that pushed the line close enough to Pozier for the Aussies to launch these attacks. You know, the Aussies didn't yep. fight independently. The Aussies didn't start in army on and walk on. You know, fight all the way up. Yeah. The Aussies attacked from trenches that had been established by British forces who'd attacked there previously. So it's a it's an interesting part of the story that we Aussies surprisingly tend to overlook <laughs> i'd never noticed that ever <laughs> uh we're going to keep walking down that road okay we're doing this obviously um obviously in a, in a virtual sense on this podcast but if you do it in a literal sense uh, when you go to the battlefields be careful this is a busy road <laughs> it is a good opportunity to get squashed by a lorry uh, as you walk yeah. down this road so the the roman road is uh, straight and busy and it's not a particularly pleasant walk but it's well worth it to get down to Posier british cemetery it is indeed and uh, and it's a I find this a very interesting memorial. So I'm just going to describe it. It's uh, a, a square, a uh, very fantastic front uh, to it. Great big uh, wrought iron gates, um, a portico. Uh, uh, within the kind of the, the, the square, it's a hollow square. You've got the cemetery itself. And then the walls and cloistered walkways around the outside with the names of the missing. So two very separate parts, a, a, a cemetery and then a memorial to the missing that surrounds it. But it's too near the road. I, 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 the only way I can explain this when you're right underneath it and alongside it, you do not get the feel of the beauty of the of the frontage, the pillars, the gates. You need to be back down on that dead man's road. So if you're on dead man's road looking up towards it, that's when you get a really good view of it and, and you get the idea of what the architect intended. But when you're right underneath it, going through the gates, you don't really get that feel of what it's like because it is an exceptional uh, uh, memorial, um, the uh, the, the Poitiers uh, Memorial to the Missing, because that's, that's a, what it is. So that's that, a bit of an odd sorry. one, Pete. You're right, because you expect 
It's 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 so beautiful and imposing and grand. You expect it'll also be silent. You know, you expect it to be like the Men and Gate. It's, it's got that sort of feeling that it should be just silent and commemoration stuff. Yeah, it's not at all. You've got lorries barreling past down the road, massive trucks, cars. You can't get a photo of it. Anyone who's foolish enough to try and step back to take a photo will be risking getting flattened on the road. It's 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 actually noisy. And it doesn't and- work anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't work anywhere. Well, you, you stand opposite it, trying to get a photo, and all you can actually photograph is the gate because it's that frontage is so broad that you need to step back, and that's really what I mean. You need to be down on Dead Man's Road in the valley below, looking up, and then you get the the, the real feel of what was intended by the architect. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, you just cannot get away from it. It's a beautiful memorial. Um, Collishaw, W. H. Collishaw was the uh, the, the sculpture. Um, and uh, sorry, no, was the uh, the designer and the sculptor was a chap called Lawrence A. Turner because there's some beautiful uh, folded great coats, helmets on top, crossed rifles, oh, it's wreaths. It's just a lovely memorial, uh, and you certainly deserve sometimes sometimes to spend just looking at the memorial itself. It's a pretty impressive, and it's a big old cemetery as well. I'm I'm just looking for the numbers of the the number of men buried there. Yeah, I've got it. I've got them somewhere. Yeah, I knew you would. So you would. uh, Yeah. So uh, 2,758. So I'll say that again. I was gabbling a bit. 2,758 Commonwealth servicemen buried or commemorated in the cemetery. Um, 1,380 of the burials are unidentified, and there's a special memorial to 23 who are known to be buried amongst them. So that's the cemetery itself. And, of course, uh, I should add as well, given the nature of the fighting in the area, 708 of the burials are Australian, which is yeah, a I'll, big I'll, old number yeah. in that cemetery. Uh, and what's, it, <clears throat> what's interesting about that, a lot of the Australians form Plot 2, and Plot 2 is the original cemetery. So when this was architecturally designed, there was a cemetery there, and, the, uh, and that is Plot 2, and then it was much enlarged by the concentration of graves from off the battlefield, uh, and then we have the memorial built, uh, built uh, around them. Let's talk about a couple of the key graves that are in there, Pete. So I'm just going to get the, the numbers for the 14,000. So 14,652, 14, I believe, for checking my notes, <laughs> which I've yeah. managed to find in the, in the scramble. <laughs> yeah, and those are the people that are commemorated that, that are missing on the walls. Well, let's talk about the memorial first before we get to the, a couple of the graves in the cemetery because it's, um, it's, it's quite fascinating because it's a memorial not to 1916 but to 1918, Pete. How does that happen to, to work? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it was placed there. I think it's fairly central. Uh, it's for the missing of the Somme, and it's from the 21st of March, which is the first day of the German Spring Offensive, the Grey Avalanche that overruns the frontline positions and pushes us right the way back across uh, everything that we gained in three years of fighting. Um, so 21st of March to the 7th of August, and that's effectively when we stopped the uh, the German Spring uh, Offensive, uh, the Michael Offensive. Uh, in this uh, in the area of the Somme, so 21st of March to the 7th of August, and then it's our turn. Our counter, our counter assault starts on the 8th of August, so that's what it is. It's that period of the German assault, then the period when we're static for a while, while while we're we're preparing ourselves, and off we go on the on the 8th of August. So it's that period, um, and uh, and sadly, an awful lot of men became missing because that uh, I suppose. When you're in successful actions, or unsuccessful actions, should I say, as the Germans are overrunning us, it's left to the Germans to bury uh, our dead. And yes, they're going to bury them, 
and they're going to generally bury them in mass graves and not mark where they are or the markings will be lost in subsequent fighting as we push the Germans back after the 8th of August. So effectively we lose an awful lot of men in that period when we are being forced back. We cannot look after and bury our dead properly and so we get uh, these missing have to be commemorated somewhere and it was decided to commemorate them on this ridge, on the on the Poissiers Ridge. Always struck me as a bit of an odd spot to do it, Peter. I, I would have preferred them to have a separate memorial commemorating the German Spring Offensive because they get a bit overlooked and they're in a cem- they're, the, the, the memorial wall is in a cemetery which is mostly 1916 casualties from the Battle of the Somme. Yep. It's, it's, a, it's always been a bit of an odd one to me that... that the missing effectively from the German Spring Offensive um, would be recorded in the Pozier battlefield. Um, and in addition, there's no Australians here. It's a, it's a British memorial. Any Australian killed in Pozier and missing is on the memorial at Villas Bretno. So th- there's a bit of a hodgepodge going on. It's a little bit confusing. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really quite fit for me, but um, a very impressive memorial, no. obviously. Well worth well, reading the names of the men there. Yeah. I, I, I honestly get the, the, the feeling, and I have no idea if this is correct, but I get the feeling that... If they were expecting pilgrims to come to the Battle of the Somme, most of them would be covering, would be actually coming to visit the Battle of the Somme 1916 to go and see the enormous Teepval Memorial with its 72,000 names on it. Whilst you're here, why not visit the memorial to the missing of 1918? And that's the kind of feel that you almost get. It, it, it's whilst you are here and you're visiting the battlefields of the 1st of July, which they always knew that lots and lots of people would want to go to. Let's also put the, the memorial to 1918 fighting close to it so people can look at the bo- both of them at the same time during the one visit. Now, I don't know if that's right. It just has that slight feel about it. It's amazing how many people who are first time to the battlefields and know all about the Teepval Memorial, the fighting of 1916, go to the, the battlefields of 1916, even may go to Poitiers if you have an interest in the Australian effort and, and the South Africans, go to the South African memor- memorial at Delville Wood and on and on with all of the other memorials and then miss that one completely because it's 1918 and they don't realise what it is. They drive past it and think it's just a nice posh cemetery with a big wall going around it. So I, 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 you're right, it, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful memorial, but is it in the right place? Yes, I suppose it is in the right place because this is where men in 1918 fought and died. But uh, should it have been so close to the fighting of 1916 or right on top of the fighting of 1916? I don't know. Well, hopefully podcasts like this one make sure that people don't miss out on it because it's well worth seeing not just the cemetery but also the memorial to the men of 1918 who fell in this area. Um, We should mention a couple of key graves uh, in the cemetery. Uh, Of course, Claude Castleton, VC. Now, he is a Victorian and I used to call him Claude Castleton. Um, woe to me for that. The Victorians have quite rightly pointed out that in Victoria his name would absolutely be Castleton, so Claude Castleton, uh, Victoria Cross winner. Um, interestingly, Pete, it was in that period when this was still allowed, awarded a Victoria Cross for rescuing wounded, which fairly oh, soon yeah. after um, the rules were changed and you were not allowed to receive a Victoria Cross for rescuing wounded, but um, Claude Castleton was really a one-man rescuing machine and rescued three or four comrades from the fields of Pozier before he was hit and killed himself and awarded the VC. So we don't want to go off in too much of our one of our tangents, Pete, but that was an interesting chapter that, uh, just an interesting th- side note, that, that earlier in the war, the idea that you would go out and rescue one or several men under fire would earn you a VC, but but uh, but it started to happen so frequently that they decided it would no longer be, um, be, uh, be worthy of a VC. 
Yeah, I, I think it was that unthinking act, uh, the thought that the VC is awarded for an unthinking act. In other words, something that you do uh, on the spare of the moment without thinking it through. And I think it was felt that seeing your commanding officer in no man's land and thinking, well, if I pop out there, sling him on my back and come galloping back, I'm probably going to get the Victoria Cross. It was almost like you could think through the, the ramifications of doing it. Now, whether you were going to survive it or not was another matter. But I think that was why, why it was taken out. It was felt it was too easy to see how you could be awarded the Victoria Cross if you did that. Interesting. Controversial. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> That's why we do this. Is. That's why we have these discussions. I think, wasn't there something about you, if, you were, if you were in the medical corps, you could still receive the Victoria Cross if you were performing your duties as part of the medical corps, mm. but medical people didn't often receive Victoria Crosses. Yeah. So this really spelt the end of the Victoria Cross for the rescuing of wounded. But Claude Castleton was one of the last um, recipients of the Victoria Cross to receive it for rescuing wounded, and what a great job he did. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know. I think he's outside of that period, Matt. I've got a feeling that that was brought in prior to him being awarded it. Um, really? uh, yeah, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the date that 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 came in as a as a recommendation. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll need to have a look at that. See uh, see what the date was. But I've always said it was 1915. So but I may be wrong. Late 15, early 16. I, I, I don't know. And I'm sure somebody listening will uh, will would like to let yeah, us please know. Please let us know. We'll certainly do. look it up. But uh, in yeah. the meantime, uh, certainly yeah. send in your thoughts about that to uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, yeah. The other grave I always like to visit when I'm here, Pete, is. Uh, Major Duncan Chapman, and um, you know, I wasn't the first person to go and visit his grave, but I, you know, I, uh, you know, I felt that particularly my book, Walking with the Anzacs, we emphasise this quite well. That as far as we can tell, and these things are never going to never going to be perfect, but as far as we can tell, Charles Bean in the official history suggested that Duncan Chapman, as a younger officer, as I think he was a lieutenant at the time, was the first man ashore at Gallipoli on the morning of the landing. What do you think? Yeah, about very. That? Uh, well, again, it's another one of those. Uh, who knows? Um, you know, we, uh, uh, over the years, you get other people suggesting that it may be somebody else. Uh, I don't think it really matters. I think just saying he was one of the first, and he may be the first. He may not. How on earth do we know in the dark? And uh, how, how would you know who was the first man to, to step ashore? But uh, yeah, he's always he's always in there in the listing. He was certainly among the first, and he was killed at Pozier, and uh, his, uh, was it was a big loss to his men. He was a major by the stage, and uh, was a huge loss to his men. He was a much loved. Uh, officer and is buried there in Posey British Cemetery. So go and check, go and check him out as well. Any other graves that you like to visit in that cemetery? Pete? Not a gra- not a grave. There's one of my heroes is uh, commemorated here. Uh, we did a, actually a, a podcast on him and his men. Uh, post- podcast forty one, Manchester Hill, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Wilfred Elstob, VC DSOMC. Um, uh, commanding the 16th uh, Battalion Manchester Regiment, and he died on the 21st of March during that uh, the, the German uh, the Grey Avalanche, as it's sometimes described, the first day of their spring offensive, uh, and he was uh, holding on to Manchester Hill and the Redoubt there, um, and he fought to, to the to the, the last man, um, and he died along with his men right at the end of the uh, assault, and sadly his uh, his body was never recovered, and so he's commemorated here. Um, and uh, yeah, I always go and, uh, and touch his name. That term, that concept, fought to the last. It just carries so much horrific baggage of what those poor buggers went through in the, the last moments of their life. So yeah, worth remembering those stories. 
Yeah, this and this one is an odd one. It's one. Sometimes we have to take that with a kind of almost like uh, we have to take with a pinch of salt, really, because uh, until we found the German records, then then saying you fought to the to the last was well, did you? Who who really knows? Who can say if they fought? But in this case, we can because their telephone line was connected until the end uh, up to uh, to brigade headquarters, and so we, uh, literally we had uh, reports going in almost hour by hour as to how they were doing until they were down to the last few men um so we know they fought to the end because uh, because they were speaking to their to their headquarters until the brigade headquarters and until they were overrun gallant and historic stuff go back and listen to that podcast about manchester hill if you haven't because the the the, the plight of those poor brits who knew that the germans were coming any day now was uh, was something quite extraordinary but um we're going to leave the cemetery now pete we're going to return back to the village of Pozier, so back along the roman road again dodging the trucks and the lorries um we're going to come to something that is well, probably not even worth noticing, is it, Pete? It's a pile of rubble on the side of the road next to a car park. <laughs> well, my view of uh, this is uh, the Gibraltar Strong Point, and my view of the Gibraltar Strong Point is it's one of the underutilised um, sites on the whole of certainly the Somme battlefield, and it needs uh, it needs. Uh, archaeological work doing on it it needs preserving it needs proper signage i just think it's a it's a wonderful resource that that has just been abandoned basically and i i don't like going there because it gets well no that's not true i do it i enjoy going there but it's it's what is left is slowly collapsing in and being and being buried the stairs that take you down into the cellars of the blockhouse the concrete reinforcing the brickwork of the original building and that's something that I, I think should really be preserved because quite often this is seen as a standalone uh, uh, defensive position, observation position, a concrete observation position in a, a morass of nothing. And I've heard it described as being forward of the village. Well, it most definitely was not forward of the village because when you could see down into the cellar, you can see that it is built inside a house. It is literally being built inside a house. And when you think about it, the Germans, when they, they took the village of Poissier with very little damage, they're going to fortify it, and they do not want people to know what they're fortifying and where they're building observation positions, and so they built them within houses. And almost certainly this was built in the, the last house of the village, in its gable at the gable end, built inside there with an observation position at the top of the uh, of the gable end but of course we have no pictures of that because by the time we get there it is just a concrete uh, defensive position because the house has gone well the house has not gone it's there in the landscape but it's beneath the landscape and it needs archaeologically clearing out so we can actually see that and tell the full story of the gibraltar blockhouse have I got on my high horse? Maybe a little bit. Well, we're going to do um, that several times in this podcast, Pete, so don't, <laughs> yeah, uh, don't worry yeah, about yeah. that. There's a, there's a, a yeah. is, the village of Pozier is in a bit of an interesting time where it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's taking steps to, to try and emphasise its war history in ways that uh, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but in, in ways that uh, some of us think are not appropriate. But I agree with you that we'll get to that later, but... Um, it's a missed opportunity. The, the photos are iconic of Gibraltar. Yeah. What we should say is if you look at any photo, if you type in Pozier into a Google search, almost certainly what you will see is a picture of Aussie soldiers walking past an yeah. immense concrete looming structure, the biggest you'd ever see, much, much bigger than any of the ones you'd see in Tynecott Cemetery or Polygon Wood up in the salient. This thing is absolutely massive. And 
my assumption has always been Gibraltar because it's like the Rock of Gibraltar. It just stood by the time they saw it, it just stood there like a, you know, like an unimpeachable, uh, you know, obstacle. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, Pete. That the modern site is just, yeah, as you said, just a little fenced area with some steps leading down, and yeah. you can't really tell what it is. Uh, it, it, great it, for it, a picnic. Good for a picnic. <laughs> it's good seating around it, um, but yeah, it could yeah. they could do a lot more work there. But um, the yeah, capture good. of Gibraltar has got a couple of stories which I think are. Uh, you know, particularly for us Aussies who like to find our, our good Aussie, Aussie angle. A couple of yeah. things I like about it was that um, when they captured, so they the Aussies overran it, captured the position, and they took some prisoners. They, they killed a lot of the men who were in there, but they did take some prisoners. And under interrogation, those prisoners revealed that they knew that it was Australian troops that they were facing and that they were going to be fighting against. Uh, and the simple reason was that the Aussies had been shouting out to them all through the previous night. <laughs> so I just love the... This is mentioned in the official history. I just love the thought of what were the Australians shouting out to the Germans yeah. in the pillbox the day before they... Uh, the night before they came and attacked them. So we're coming for you, Jerry. Get ready. We're the Australians and we're here to to really mess things up. So um, I, I do like that story. But also there's a bit of a sad tale. I'm going to read a, a, a quote here. And I think I've touched on this and I certainly touch on this on tours. I've touched on this, perhaps I've even mentioned on our podcast, I can't recall, but it's a story worth repeating. So um, this is from Private John Burke of the 8th Battalion who after Gibraltar had been captured and the fighting had moved on, he was just wandering around and he, he went through and decided to explore the pillbox. Uh, and this is what he found. It was a, it was a two-chambered pillbox. It was an upstairs and a downstairs. In the lower chamber, this is what he found. And this is a quote from him. A heap of cake boxes of cardboard and sewn in with calico, just as the parcels come to us from Australia. The addresses were in a child's handwriting, as were also one or two letters. In another corner was a coat rolled up. I opened it out and found it stained with blood, and there, right between the shoulders, was a burnt shrapnel hole. The owner of the coat was a German, and some might say not entitled to much sympathy. Perhaps not, but I couldn't help thinking sadly of the little girl or boy who sent the cakes. Mm. And, I mean, those little pieces of humanity in the middle of all this horror are really just the yeah. most touching aspects of walking the ground, aren't they, Pete? Yeah, I, I, and that's what brings it home, isn't it? And um, and I, I always feel that those, in my own collection, I've got things that have been picked up off the battlefields, and I've actually got a picture of a, of a, of a woman and, uh, uh, and, uh, and a family, and the soldiers actually felt embarrassed about keeping it he scribbled out the soldier's address and his name so all, and all he's put is picked up on the battlefield of I can't remember where it is now but whichever battlefield it was uh, and he's felt awkward himself that, that he's had this thing and so he scribbled out the name of the family of who they are so I don't know who they are but I think it's very moving that he kept it that he wanted to keep it because he found it on the uh, on the battlefield um, and yeah I like that humanity the feeling of, 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 of humanity uh, we even know the guys that uh, led the assault. So we have Captain Ernest Herod, who rushed it uh, from the front, and Lieutenant Walter Waterhouse, who, who attacked it from the rear. Now, I just pulled that out of something on, online just uh, uh, a few days ago. And immediately, and you haven't got time to all of, uh, to do all of this, but I thought, I wonder if Captain Ernest Herod survived the war and Walter Waterhouse, Lieutenant Walter Waterhouse, did they survive or is this going to be their last battle? And that's part of the enjoyment, of, I suppose, of doing research. Enjoyment, is that the right term? Uh, interest, enjoyment, it is an enjoyment to me, but uh, of finding out what happened to these people that are involved in these actions. Um, Apparently there were 26 Germans inside it, and I often look at that cellar and think that's quite packing them in a bit, 26 people inside the, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the cellar. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, when those guns apparently- started blasting, Pete, you'd, uh, you'd yeah. cram in next to uh, <laughs> anyone you yeah, could find. Would. 
Yeah, you would. Um, they do say, and I was talking to a, a, somebody who had been in the initial excavation of it, and he said that it's about three times bigger than what we can see now. We're only looking at a fraction of what, what was once once there. So it is interesting. And that's why it needs archaeological work to be done on it, so we can actually get a better feel of what was actually there and uh, and how much uh, how much space there was there. And almost certainly there'll be shafts leading further down because it was deeper than it is. And for those that are interested in tactics, one of the things that I always point out is the stairs that are still there that are leading down into it are obviously internal stairs they're not stairs that would have led to the surface because they are leading to the surface in the wrong direction they are coming out facing the attacking australians and you never have stairs facing your enemy they always face in the other direction so it's interesting when we look at the stairwell and the stairs going down they must have been internals. There would have been a great concrete wall in front of those because you would not have had stairways coming to the surface facing your enemy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's interesting, Pete. We mentioned the 26 Germans that were in there. It just occurred to me. I wonder if there was... I, I've always wondered where these things were. There 26 men who'd been allocated to that post or were there a dozen men who'd been allocated to the post who were then <laughs> hurriedly joined yeah. by many of their comrades who fell back as yeah. the Australians advanced? Yeah, I think I think almost certainly uh, 26 men would not have been the allocated number and men would slowly percolate there as they came under more and more pressure. They would move into a place where they felt an element of safety. 
it's the um the one of the benefits of walking the battlefields is finding out about the um the is is just exploring that psychology as well. You can and that's what you can do when you're on the battlefields mm. to go. Yeah, okay, this exactly. is a place of shelter. What would this have meant meant for men who were under fire? Yeah, because they weren't all superheroes. Obviously, as soon as the machine gun started blasting at them or shell fire came, you know they tried to get to safety. They're not, you know most men yeah. didn't want to stand up and get their heads blown off. So they, they it's interesting to walk the ground. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but as we walk the ground, we can start to interpret where men would move in this space as they came under fire, both the attackers and the defenders. Yeah, indeed. And that's one of the, uh, one, I suppose, of the reasons why the whole of Quasier is, is obliterated because we are heavily bombarding it as we assault. And of course, the minute it is lost, the Germans heavily bombarded it. So for months, it is under fire from, from either one of us, either the German fire when we've taken it or our fire when the Germans are holding it. Uh, leaving Gibraltar now, crossing the little car park there, the spectacular First Division Memorial, an iconic Australian Division Memorial. There's five on the Western Front. This one is of the standard design of four of those. The exception is the uh, Second Division Memorial at Mont St. Quentin, uh, further east on the Somme, which depicts a sculpture of an Australian soldier. Uh, but the other four of the five Australian Division Memorials are of this style. They all look the same, this you know, quite imposing grey yep. uh, obelisk. Uh, with the rising sun, the iconic rising sun, and the battle honours of, of the division. And each of the divisions chose a spot on the battlefield that they felt best symbolised their service and sacrifice during the war. And I think there's, you know, for the first division, you know, the first blokes ashore at Gallipoli, um, there was uh, there was no greater uh, greater hellfire than they suffered uh, here at Pozier during the war. So uh, uh, quite a, an appropriate place for this memorial. Yeah, I often say, you know, what are the what are the uh, the catalysts that decide where a memorial is going to be placed? And um, you have to say it it's generally casualties, but it's it's also success. I don't think any of the divisional memorials and very few memorials, full stop, are placed on locations of just uh, casualties and disaster. No, uh, because for the for the fifth division, uh, their memorial is uh, at Polygon Wood. If they were going to place it on terrible casualties uh, and disaster, then they would it would have been at Fromel, and it, and, and it's not. So I th- I think you need those two things: success uh, and, per- and perhaps casualties. So you're remembering the men that died to gain that success, and this would be a very good reason for the first division to put it in their very first action on on the Western Front, their first divisional attack. And they decide that that is where their divisional memorial uh, uh, was going to go. I think it's a good point you raise, Pete, and it's worth touching on um, that. To my mind, the veterans, if they went through something like a Fromel that was just a huge disaster, or the British veterans who went through slaughter on the first day of the Somme, um, they didn't look back on that fondly. They looked back on that as an ordeal that they'd been through. They felt, you know, they missed their mates. They often felt it was a huge cock up. That and why were we even there? And how how did it go so badly? It's only in hindsight when we look at it a century removed that we start to go, oh, that's a triumphant place we should remember. To a lot of the veterans, it wasn't at all. A lot of the veterans of Fromel didn't want to walk around saying, you know, they were happy to say they were at Fromel, but they didn't want to see the word Fromel written on plaques and boards. It was where they got their their asses kicked and and lost thousands and thousands of mates and they didn't want yeah. to celebrate it and see it commemorated in any way shape or form so yeah. it's 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 the changing perspective that when we now look at battles like from where we say okay that should be you know should be yeah. honored and remembered and it should be remembered and it should be honored as it is um, but not quite in the same way as the veterans thought so i think the first division memorial is a perfect example of that that the reason it's at posier yes it was their most costly battle but also one of their most triumphant what they did getting through that village under such terrible fire and surviving the the hell on earth that was the german counter barrage was uh, just extraordinary 
Yeah, uh, and uh, I know that for the we mentioned the second battalion because it's a, uh, the second battalion that uh, effectively are taking the the blockhouse. It's it's one of the the worst days. I did have the yeah five hundred and ten men killed, wounded, and missing during the three days at Poitiers, and that's the second battalion who who actually took the the, the blockhouse. Um, so that, considering that in an attack you probably have eight hundred men, a battalion at full strength. So 510 men killed, wounded, and missing. I mean, that battalion could not operate. That that mm. that is basically the destruction of that battalion in its very first action on the Western Front. And in three days, the first division was pulled in, out of the yeah, line in, on the on the yeah, 26th. They went on the 23rd days. and was pulled yeah. out on the 26th. The nature of the yeah. fighting here is just, uh, you know, we we can't comprehend it, even with no. these statistics. We can't uh, we can't begin to no. understand what it was like. And the biggest killer, of course, is the artillery. That should be pointed out. The, the biggest killer of uh, of the first division is not the machine gun; it's the artillery. Once they've taken the town, they three days have been pounded by uh, by German artillery. There's all sorts of nature of horrific stories about that. If you read about the Battle of Pozieres, Charles Bean talks about going up to the line, and he was a, he was a brave man, Charles Bean. He was he never shirked from being in the thick of the action. He was in the front line while it was being barraged by by the uh, by the Germans and and the, the the fighting elsewhere in the front line had died down somewhat in the Somme battle at the, at this stage and so the Germans were free to concentrate even more artillery on Pozieres and so it was one of the heaviest bombardments the Australians ever went through but Bean describes absolutely horrific scenes at one stage he went down a trench and he saw a bunch of men nervously playing um, playing cards around an upturned box and uh, the sergeant their sergeant had just been killed and so they'd flung his body up on the parapet, and another man had sat down and uh, and taken over from him, and just sitting there, you know, trying to distract themselves from the the hurricane of shell fire all around them. And when Bean came back ten minutes later, they were all dead; they'd been hit by a shell. So just, just horrific, horrific stories. That all took place in this area. Uh, so that's the first division memorial. So pause there and just remember what uh, what that means when you see that that memorial is there. Uh, but we're going to push on after we've seen the first division memorial. Where are we yeah, now in the in the old well in the old days we would have uh, had a walk up to the top of an observation platform that uh, was there. It was a very good observation platform. I used to enjoy looking out uh, across the battlefield and more specifically looking across to the Teepval Memorial. So looking over on the Somme battlefield. Now sadly that was taken down and it was taken down for a very good reason. That a, a wood has been uh, planted. Um, in in front of it, and uh, it's actually behind the First Divisional Memorial, so we no longer have the view across to the uh, Tietbal uh, Memorial. So again, not a lot of thought, I don't think, from the uh, the, the townspeople. Uh, the, they killed one of the the great things to go and see, uh, see, and so they took took it down because it became fairly pointless to have an observation platform that where you'd lost the view. Uh, so that was removed. So I always bemoan. The, the planting of the wood and the, the loss of the observation platform. So we're going to go past that site, carry on towards the um, the church, which obviously was rebuilt. And just in front of the church, we have the village war memorial, something I always recommend people to go and, and see. We forget we're looking at our own ac- uh, actions, the, the the British, the Australians, the Canadians who will fight uh, in, in around the village. That's what we're, we're really going to be talking about. But we forget that men left this village to go to war, to fight for France uh, uh, and died elsewhere. 
and they are commemorated in their village that had been destroyed whilst they were away and sadly lost their lives and for those returning as well um, I, I, I think we have to remember those people that left and came back to nothing and had to then get on with their lives and commemorate their, their brothers and relatives and fathers and friends who died and so they raised memorials as we did in Australia and Britain and elsewhere in the world and the, here they are in, in France. So I always stop to go and have a look. It's got a sometimes described by some of my travelling companions as a chicken on the top. It's not a chicken, <laughs> it's a cockerel. It's a, a French cockerel on top, uh, uh, proudly standing on top of the memorial. So I always point it out, always have a, have a look at it. And then opposite, we have the school. Now the school, small school, I don't know how many kids, there's only 250 people in the village full stop. So it's, uh, it's a very small village, is Poisiers. Most villages in this area of France have a school. Well, there's a little story connected with the school because it was felt that the school could, could be enhanced. Uh, and this was really something that started prior to the centenaries, um, that the school should have an Australian kind of... Uh, um, an Australian feel to it. Perhaps Australia should put some money, and very specifically, not Australia, New South Wales. Um, and so um, you probably know more about this than I do, Matt, but it's an interesting story, isn't it? That The view that, that this area of France needs help in, in its in its education and my children are being educated here my children go to a very similar school and they're educated very well these schools are yes they are small but the you know the they're, they're very good and in fact I quite like that aspect that they feel old-fashioned to to me they feel uh, to a lot of Brits it's one of the reasons we like looking at France is because it has a slight older feel to it, it feels like Britain in the 19 kind of 70s and 80s um, and so the schools are very good here but it was felt that uh, by a group of people that, the, that this school needed to be enhanced and wouldn't it be a good idea to, to set a little academy up and to teach uh, people about Australia and to have uh, cross uh, um, children from Australia coming here and visiting and, and some of the children leaving and going to Australia and I just think it was an odd concept really myself um, I don't know what, you, what your view is Matt of it Oh, I'm not walking to this minefield, Pete. <laughs> I'll wave to you from the outside. No, no, I agree. I agree entirely. I think. I, yeah, yeah. Look, I think obviously there's a there's a, a relationship here with Victoria School in Villas Bretno. It's fairly obvious. It's called. It's named after the state of Victoria, and so after the after the war, um, Victorian school children raised money and they helped rebuild the school, or people of Victoria raised money to help rebuild the school in Villas Bretno. But the important thing is this took place in the 1920s. It was, uh, you know, it was a best part of a century later that we all of a sudden decided that there should be a connection, you know, an enhancement of Pozier and the Pozier School. I thought it was a bit odd as well. I don't know what's come of it. It hasn't really done very much. But the idea that Australians would be fundraising for a very wealthy, prosperous European country, I thought was a bit odd. And the reason there's not a bit, and the French education system is excellent. The reason there's not a bigger, better school there is they don't need one. So, no, exactly. Um, I, I, and what my worry was, and, the, and I don't want to go on because it's a, this is a very kind of local thing, but my worry was that in trying to make this viable, they would have to shut down little village schools all over the place to move enough people, Australian children in the area, to this to make it a viable school um, with a French-Australian curriculum, which is what they were talking about, whatever that means, I have no idea, but, uh, but they were going to introduce it. And so my view was that, well... If you're shutting down schools all over the place to bring enough French school kids in to make this viable, well, what's the point? It's, no, this isn't a third world country. We've got a good education system here, and I just couldn't really get it. Well intentioned. Look, it, 
I, I think the thing about many things, many things at Posier, I think you could sum up as well intentioned, but a little off track, a little misguided, perhaps. To be yeah, I agree. I, I went online to go and see how it was doing, and I can't find anything basically beyond twenty sixteen. Yeah, it seems to have fizzled a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. It has, yeah. It appears to have just dropped off the face of the earth. I can find nothing online about it from 2016 onwards, so I don't know what's what's happening. Maybe it will raise its head again at some stage in the future, but I think at the moment it's uh, on hold, let's put it that way. Well, I think after having visited the, all these memorials, Pete, and, uh, and and the school and everything else, I think we're in need of a cold beer. Is, is there anywhere? Is there anywhere we can get one in the area? I don't know, Matt. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, a very a very famous uh, cafe, just so we're doubling back a little bit up the main road again. We're back on the main Roman road, and it's the, uh, known as the Tommy Cafe to, uh, by everybody, but La Tommy uh, Cafe de Souvenir. It's its full title. What a great uh, run class. by a chap. Yeah, run by a chap called Dominique, uh, who's been there uh, as long as I've been here, so twenty odd years, um, and uh, great character. Uh, for anybody that knows the salient and knows Johan and his, his cafe near Polygon Wood, well, the Tommy is the French equivalent. Uh, both very similar chaps, obsessed with the battlefields. It's been their lives for forever. Um, very, very passionate. Uh, artifacts everywhere. Uh, a museum, a trench system. You could spend a good couple of hours just looking at Dominic's things that he's that he's he, he's got. In the old days, he sold stuff everywhere as well. I mean, I used to go in and I couldn't. I always came out with a helmet or something. He couldn't help myself. Um, but it's uh, n- not so much of selling things now. It's more of just a, a museum. But interesting chat to to chat to. He will give you the update on bodies found in the area, trenches discovered. He knows everything that's going on on the battlefield. So uh, yeah. Well worth uh, well worth uh, a beer and and food of course it does does food my favourite ham egg and chips can't oh. go wrong with ham egg and chips on a on a cold day in the winter and a pint of beer you set up for the afternoon I do like La Tommy I've got to say it's quirky and it's yeah. a bit it's a bit naff you know it's a bit you know he collects things and he's rebuilt <laughs> he's rebuilt what he calls his trench yeah. system which is basically just yeah. gathered up as much yeah. stuff as he can find but it's you know, I. Yeah. Gotta say, I find it interesting. I, there's something about it. It does appeal to me. It must yeah. just be my strange I, and he, personality. He but. does rummage. He has got his fingers into everything. So if anything <laughs> is found on the battlefield, then Dominic will know about it. Irritatingly, as so, uh, some of you w- w- will know, I live in a village that is associated with tanks, and I've or I've fantasised about finding a big lump of tank somewhere to bring back and put in my garden. And uh, I popped in. This was in the middle of COVID. I popped in to go and see Dominic, and there he's got this sprocket from a tank he's just cleaned it up he's proudly got it on his on one of the tables and I said Dominic where on earth did you find that he said just near your house he said they were digging a ditch at the back of your house and I found it there <laughs> I thought I can't believe it um, and, oh dear. Uh, yeah I was I was not happy but anyway yeah nice that it's somewhere so you can go and have a look at it so uh, yeah <laughs> it's, it's well worth calling it interesting and he's got mm, you know I even like is. he's got a lot of interesting charts on the walls he's got to name every Australian soldier killed at Posier on the wall he's got rolls of honor and it's a good spot to stop he's got clean toilets it's a, it's you know it's a, it's a, it's a it's a good place to stop on the battlefields quirky and it interesting is. and lots of relics. It is. and there aren't that many so i have to say there are not that many and it's the toilet aspect that i like never mind the coffee and beer and uh, <laughs> ham egg and chips yeah it's always a warm welcome there as well um leaving la tommy after having uh, filled our bellies what's next on our so tour? we're going to carry on in the direction of advance so we're carrying on through the village i always think the village is uh, 
when I say it's a sad little village, what do I mean? I suppose I mean it looks it, it, it's it's run down. It is is posier. It has a slight run down feel uh, to it, and certainly on the main street. And most of the houses are actually on the main street. It's because it's a, a, a ribbon development. In other words, it's developed along that 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 main road. Um, the houses uh, are not expensive in in rural France. And let's face it, if you've got some money and you're going to buy a rural a rural house in France, are you going to buy one on the side of the main road where there's long, lorries kind of blasting through kind of uh, every hour and uh, uh, of of the day? Um, and I would say no. So a lot of the houses on the main road are actually either run down, empty, derelict, or just looking un, uncared for. Uh, and that's, I suppose, what I mean, really. Sad's not the right word. Uncared for would be a better word. The village feels a little uncared, uh, uncared for. But some people have, uh, have, have put a little bit of effort in, and there's a, it's, there used to be a bed and breakfast. It's no longer, I don't think, a bed and breakfast. On the turning that would take you to Contel Maison, and there there's just, if you just turn right, so you're going up the road, you turn right, and on your left-hand side there's a new little memorial, it's been here a while now I suppose, uh, to a chap called George Butterworth. Uh, Lieutenant George uh, Sainton K. Butterworth, MC, who uh, was an officer in the 13th Battalion of the Durham Light Infantry. And he was killed uh, in the area, just on the far side of the village, on the 5th of August uh, in 1916. He is sometimes described as one of the greatest potential uh, composers um, uh, that died during uh, during the war. He was at the start of his, uh, his career. So a musical composer, collector of English folk songs. So he went around the country collecting old folk songs. And he was also an expert on Morris dancing, for those of uh, who like country pursuits. Uh, I used to live in rural Dorset and uh, very much an area of Morris dancers. I quite like Morris dancers, but mainly for the fact that they drank like fish. Uh, and normally the, uh, the, the pubs would get real ailing. Um, but an interesting guy, I'm going off to tangents again sorry uh, <laughs> it's a good one though Pete. morris dance i don't even know what that is i'll give you a demonstration next time i see you matt with a you have to tie bells around your ankles and your and your wrists and I'll have to and be several hang- several pints involved i'm sure to, uh, to and, and hold a hanky in each hand you'll uh okay. yeah, i'll have to give you a full demonstration so morris dancing yeah anybody he's a he's a very interesting guy well worth looking up so uh george butterworth MC uh, composer, have a look online and see what he what he composed. Uh, composed. Um, uh, this memorial to him com- uh, finishes with uh, uh, one of the lads that will die in their glory and never be old, which I think is quite a, a moving uh, epitaph. That's very nice, and um, it's good. But yeah, it hasn't been there. It's been there maybe ten or fifteen years. Pete, it's a relatively new. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's probably longer than I think. So you're probably right. Uh, to maybe ten years. Yeah, yeah. And also not far from there is the water tower, which is a sim, you know, an iconic site in every little French village. But this one's a little bit different to uh, to the others. The, the water towers in some of these French village, uh, villages associated with the war, and also not necessarily associated with the war. There's uh, as there is in Australia, where you get the paintings on the grain, the old grain stores, you know, that are being beautiful murals being painted on the on the grain stores in uh, Australia. Uh, look a little bit like um, silos. That's the word. I'm silos, for, yes, yes, silos, silos. That's the word. Um, well, here they they started painting some of the water towers. Water towers are there to increase 
increase the water pressure the french like high water pressure in their villages and so we get these uh, these water towers and this one is emblazoned with the uh, the rising sun uh, kind of a, a shadowy depiction of an Australian uh, soldier wearing his slouch hat, and then a list of all the people awarded the Victoria Cross within the commune's boundaries. Um, so we have, uh, I can't remember any names either, I put it written down here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven, I believe. Is it seven? Seven. Yeah, seven. So seven people awarded the Victoria, uh, Victoria Cross uh, within the confines, and they're listed on the, the water tower. They're a pretty impressive collection of men as well. Arthur Blackburn is uh, is probably my uh, one yeah. of my personal heroes, uh, who uh, um, you know very famous Australian officer who actually should be more famous yeah. than he is. I think Blackburn he uh, he advanced as a private he advanced or a corporal he was at the first day of Gallipoli. He advanced further than any other Australian during the campaign. Made it all the way to Third Ridge on his own with one other with one other soldier. Yeah. They made it all the way to Third Ridge. Um, won the VC at uh, Pozier. Survived the war, fought in the Second World War. I think he lost a son during the Second World War. He was captured by the Japanese and during the Second World War, uh, and died. An old man is buried in uh, West, Temis, uh, West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide, which is a cemetery I absolutely recommend people go to if you're in Adelaide. Absolutely fascinating. Some incredible World War One um, burials in that cemetery. But um, Blackburn, uh, there was yeah a whole host of. I mean, and yeah. all the you've got to say all the Victoria Crosses, uh, one at Pozier, Pete, were pretty hard earned, weren't they? It was just such yeah, tough they were. fighting. Yeah. So yeah. some pretty impressive stories there. Yeah, there's two. Two of them are posthumous. So uh, T. Cook and uh, C. C. Castleton, both posthumous VCs, Australian VCs. Uh, they're uh, they're mentioned, and we also have a, a, a one of the a British Victoria uh, Cross. Uh, W. Short, who was awarded the Victoria Cross, and L. B. Clark, a Canadian. So it's not just Australians. Uh, there's a, a Brit and a Canadian on on there as well. Well, moving on from the water tower, Pete, we're now going to head out of the village and and walking out uh, into the, the the fields as we follow the main road. But this was where it doesn't look much today. But this was where some of the most horrific fighting of the entire Pozier battle took place. Once the village had been secured, the efforts to push. The line at the to push the line out towards two uh, German trench lines called OG one and OG two, old German one and two, and a site known as the windmill, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's it's difficult today, Pete, isn't it, to walk that ground and just know about the thousands yeah. and thousands of men who fell all around you, inching forward across that ground. Yeah, and I, I think this is why I I really love this landscape uh, from now on. This landscape in between um, the water tower and the windmill is one that uh, was well photographed at the time uh, it's certainly in the period when we were photographing the graves of the men 1917 when this is a quiet backwater the fighting has moved to the Hindenburg line 20 odd kilometers away so no fighting here and photographers went out to photograph the landscape in general to photograph the graves and there's an awful lot of white uh, wooden markers, crosses marking the graves of the men here, and uh, I just the War Memorial Hall is a fantastic collection, and it's well worth just perusing their collection of photographs of this area. Two things: it's moving to see all these white markers everywhere, but also to realise how quickly. By 1917, this landscape had self-seeded and was a mass of flowers and poppies and uh, and cornflowers and just 
was beautiful, but it's hiding the utter destruction of what was here and this completely you know, cratered landscape of the moon uh, that is now gone green again. But it, uh, and it hides some of the the, the 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 horrible morass that had been here and the, that cratered landscape. But it also is very sad in in many many ways because those graves, uh, the bulk of them, will be lost in the fighting of 1918. So those white markers that we can see blown away in 1918 and so the men that fought and died here and were buried here in proper graves given proper burial a lot of them are still here and i find that unbelievably moving and always have done to stand in this area and to walk up to the windmill site and to stand on the windmill site and it's one of those places then we know with absolute certainty that we are surrounded by Australians who fought and died here in the July and August of uh, of 1916 and I, I find that uh, that amazing I, I've just scribbled down an extra little note because I find this even more amazing that one of there is one grave here that was fairly famous and it's of Captain Ivor Stephen uh, Margetts who was from a Winyard in Tasmania. And his grave is one that was well photographed and uh, it had a wreath on it, it was well painted, uh, and it's in one of, the, one of those locations where you do get a feel of that desolation all around you. Um, sadly, it was lost. His grave was lost. He's one of those that was lost in 1918 during the fighting and he's now commemorated on the Memorial to the Missing um, at Villas Bretonneux. But what I find extraordinary, he is one of the men that went to a place called Naos, where there's an underground system of, uh, of tunnels. We've covered it in another podcast. Um, and he signed his name. He signed his name before he went onto the battlefield at Poissiers and sadly lost his life. So you can actually go and see where he signed his name and see his signature on these, these chalk walls underground that, uh, and tunnels at a place called Naor, which is behind Amiens. Um, so I just find that, that juxtaposition of being able to go and see where he signed, to see his grave, to know he had a grave and still has a grave, but it's it's still out there on the battlefield, and he's commemorated uh, on at Villas Breton on the memorial to the missing. Yeah, many of those names that Noah Pete were signed in the um, the weeks and months before Posier, weren't they? A lot of them from early yeah, 1916, yeah. and there are a large yeah, number of literally. men who signed their names on the caves at Noah who then died at Posier. I always, I, I well, firstly, I'll say go back and listen to that podcast about Pete walking around the caves of Noah. It's fascinating. But the one thing Can that I found, me bang my head. You did, you did. Uh, you uh, <laughs> nearly lost your head. I'm glad you're still with us. But um, the other thing I find, Pete, in my research is that Posier seemed to mark, just because of the nature of the casualties, they were so high, it seemed to mark a real division in service for Australian troops, troops during the First World War. And so, obviously, men, there were numbers of men that fought through Posier and went on to do other things. But it also is amazing how many men had this career where they enlisted early, they fought at Gallipoli, and then were killed or wounded at Pozier or sent home with their terrible wounds or died or were missing and disappeared. Um, and then men who, because of the casualties at Pozier, there was a big recruitment drive and a lot of men enlisted and arrived on the Western Front after Pozier. So it's fascinating, this divide that that battle seemed to create. And I, I see it time and time yeah. again when I'm researching individual soldiers. You can almost say, okay, were they, were they one of the men who was a pre-Pozier man or a post-Pozier man? And uh, it's, 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 it's just the nature of the horrendous casualties that, uh, during the battle. Yeah. And, I, and I think that would also be the feel within the battalion. They would certainly, you know, the talk would be, you can imagine, you know, in the uh, stamina behind the lines or, or in, the, in the hut, 
it would be the men that had served at Poitiers would be revered or known about, certainly. It's like the Gallipoli men, really. Yeah, no, it's a second it, Anzac, really, it. isn't it? It's a second Anzac, the, 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 old, the old hands in the, in the battalion. Yeah, yeah. They would be identified. They would possibly get together. They would, you know, you would feel like you'd miss something uh, if you joined the battalion later and were there at the end. You know, that you would still be a them and us feel, those that had fought at Poitiers and those that hadn't. Well, if we're talking about, as you mentioned, the second battalion of probably 750 or 800 men who went into the line, 510 casualties in three days. And that wasn't their last time in the line during the battle either. They were brought back in during the fighting. The, the 300-odd blokes that were still could still stand <laughs> On the feet. were brought back yeah. in at Mukay Farm and so probably lost as many again. So we're probably talking, This is um, I don't have accurate figures, but you would be surprised if there was 100 blokes at the end of Pozier who could say, yes, I was there and I survived it out of a single battalion. You know, and a battalion is supposed to be a 1,000 men. So you'd probably be talking only 10% of the of the men in that battalion who would have come through unscathed. So you're right. It would have been a very small group of people in the rebuilt battalion in future conflicts. You know, in later battles, in later years, it would have been a very small group of men who could say, yes, I was at Pozier and wasn't killed. Pozier. Yeah, and I think what's coming as well, that terrible winter of sixteen seventeen, to me, must have, and we can tell it's demoralising for most of those men that fought at Poitiers, in fact, most of the men full stop, uh, but certainly the young ones that were the recent arrivals who hadn't done anything, they've just got to get through the, the, the winter, but for men who'd fought and were tired and exhausted, that winter just must have been the final straw, yeah, it really, yeah. It certainly is a... Um an important bit of ground, Pete, that landscape there. And even though today it's just farm fields, it's uh, it's hard to take in the horrors of what went on there. And I, when I walk that ground, I'm always, I always cast my mind back to stories that I've heard, such as uh, during one attack, during the fighting, the attack went in in a couple of waves, and the second wave, as they went forward, found that the men of the first wave were lying down in front of the barbed wire. So they lay down behind them, expecting that they were gathering ready for another push on the German lines and it took them some minutes to realise that those men weren't lying down. They were dead. The entire first wave had been wiped out. So just you think about stories like that and just that whole landscape is just a sea of, as you said, death, destruction. There are still hundreds of men, if not thousands of men, lying under that soil. And um, it used to be a bit more. Uh, it used to be a bit more farm fields. We'll get to that in a minute. How it's not so much anymore. But it's 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 a little it's 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 a little bit more obscured now. But I in the old days, it was one of my favourite things to do on the Western Front was come over in the winter when there were no crops in the field and just walk that area and the stuff you would find. I remember once taking a photo of my foot because it was surrounded by more shell shards just in the soil, so chunks of high explosive shell in the soil than I'd seen anywhere else on the battlefields. And it was just a perfect visual representation of how heavy the shell fire had been there. That it was like raisins on a cake, just the dots of chunks of shell just scattered across the ground right where I was walking. Absolutely incredible. It's, a, it's an amazing spot, isn't it? A haunting spot. It is. I, I, I'm slightly spoilt by the fact that there's the, the pounding lorries going up and down the uh, the, the Route Nationale, the, the Roman Road. Um, and so I, I used to prefer going at uh, just, just as it was going dusk. Uh, and to go literally onto the windmill site and to sit there with a with a flask of coffee and a sandwich and uh, and just watch the sun go down and uh, and I, I it's one of the only places where I really felt I could almost feel the men I could feel that there were people there and I'm not that kind of person but but when you know that there are so many in the ground around you to to just to be there I I always found it a very uh, 
I don't know. It's almost like sitting in a church. You know, when you've got that quiet and you sit in a church, and it's just a feeling of peace somehow. And uh, yeah, I just uh, yeah, I enjoy I enjoyed the quiet time on the uh, uh, on the windmill site. Yeah, on the the the, the remnants of the, of the windmill. That's fascinating, Pete. It is a pretty a pretty special spot. Um, yeah. Once we walked across that ground, what are we going to see next? A couple of really important memorials, uh, and uh, that, yep. uh, that uh, the really. Uh, Mark the uh, the boundary of this battlefield. Yeah, and, and the next one that uh, is always interesting to go and have a look at, and we've got the windmill on one side, so these are on the highest point, uh, and so on the right hand side of the road, as you're looking towards Bapum, we have the Tank Corps Memorial. Um, so this is uh, the first memorial raised um, to commemorate the Tank Corps. Uh, and it was put up in 1919, so it's an early memorial as well, one of the first ones uh, on the on the battlefield, and in fact it was put up there by the tank corps themselves. They still uh, were working at their depots nearer the coast, and uh, so they cast their own model tanks to be placed on the memorial. It was supposed to be granite, but it's actually been made out of concrete, which I think is a shame, really, uh, because it's definitely needing a bit of a refurb at the moment. So uh, we have four corners. On on each corner of the memorial, there is a a tank, and we have a a, a Mark IV, a a Mark V, a medium whippet, and a Mark I gun carrier. And they are uh, models going around the, uh, the plinth, and then we have this obelisk, and then we have plates on the front commemorating all of their battle honours. So why is it there? Well, it's basically this is where tanks went into action for the first time, supporting the Canadians here uh, as they carry on that push down into the uh, to the uh, the village of Corselet. And um, so it's commemorating the use of tanks. Of course, my village where I live, Flair, uh, it is going to be on the 15th of September, that same day, the first village to be taken uh, by tanks. So I'm a li- always a little aggrieved that the this memorial isn't nearer to my village or, in fact, in my village. But uh, no, they wanted it on the main road so everybody can see it. Uh, and they do. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful memorial. Needs, as I say, needs a bit of a, a refurb, a little bit of money spending on it. Uh, it's actually got some damage uh, from the Second World War. The uh, medium whippet has a, a bullet hole in it, and you can actually see a German round embedded uh, in the uh, in the brass of the of the model tank. Uh, so a little bit of damage from the Second World War, which I think I think it's quite nice that they leave these things. You know, they could have taken that that off and recast it and and put it back on again after the after the Second World War. But no, they've left it with that little bit of damage, and I I quite like that. It's a, a link between the, both the first and the Second World War. And the fence around the memorial, Pete, is the thing that ah. most people overlook. I think you were even going to overlook I, I mentioning almost, it. I almost <laughs> overlooked it. Um, so the fence going around it is fantastic. And in fact, it was one of my favourite aspects. And again, you can see that the, this is uh, where they're breaking tanks up at the same period, 1919, the scrapping them. And what they decided to do was to take the barrels, the six-pounder barrels from the mail tanks and use those as fence posts. And some of those barrels have actual battle damage on them. So you can see they were from tanks that saw combat. Um, and then uh, a chain-linked uh, a fence that links the uh, the uh, barrels together, and that's the the drive chain from the tanks as well. So it's the the drive chain. It's like a big push bike chain. Took the power from the engines to the tracks, uh, and that's there as well. So in my view, one of the best bits of the memorial is the fence that goes uh, goes around it. 
It's uh, very much overlooked, as, as you said, Matt. A lot of people don't know these. Yeah, it's a fantastic memorial. It's really great. Not quite in the right spot to commemorate where tanks first went into action, but as you said, a very uh, a well-visited spot and a, and a great memorial. And it was down this road that I always think in 1940, during the Second World War, uh, I think it was actually Rommel that was a tank commander that came down this road in 1940. And as they sped, the Germans sped down this road with very little resistance. This just the comment was made by Rommel, what has happened to the French? My, the enemy that... Because, of course, Rommel was a First World War veteran, um, but there was a bit of a, if, if you can believe that, there was a bit of a disbelief from the Germans about um, the lack of resistance as they rolled through that area of France. But again, the, the Second World War is never far away from the, from the story of the First, and I think that's why they leave the battle damage there, Pete, because the, you know, that, that great, uh, the, the great irony, that great visual reminder of a First World War memorial being damaged only 25 years later during fighting in the Second World War. Quite, quite extraordinary. Poor old, poor old Somme region over the millennia has been pummeled by every army that's come through, so they're no strangers to fighting. No, and I should just say that um, not a lot of damage in 1940, uh, um, but uh, in fact, just literally a couple of days ago, I was looking in back home and realised that I've just found another whole section of uh, of damage from 1940 in the the, the town of back home. Um But also, this area was an area that was fought over in 1870-71 during the Franco-Prussian War. It's the same area, so so we do. There is a history of the of the Germans being in in the area around uh, around back home and and in, into Albert. And in fact, interestingly, in Labasselle, which is on the first of July front line, also on this main road there is uh, there are houses there that were destroyed in retaliation for uh for um uh, fighting that took place there by the germans they burnt them in 19 uh, in 1870 um 71 uh, during the during their occupation so the those there's damage to to buildings uh, from uh, 1870 71 1914 18 and 1940 44 it's remarkable that the French and Germans get on as well as they do today, considering that the Germans <laughs> invaded three times in 70 years. You'd think yeah, uh, yeah. you'd think relationships would be a bit strained, but uh, no, good on them. They get on very well. Uh, that's the tank memorial, and just across the road, crossing cautiously again, given the trucks belting down that road, the you know one of the most moving, I think, battlefields for uh, monuments on the battlefields for its simplicity. I would think the windmill memorial. The windmill was a famous landmark on the battlefield. In this pulverized landscape, it was something that stood out. There had been a windmill, a centuries-old windmill in Pozier before the war. Obviously, even in the early days of the war, there's photos of the windmill still there. But obviously, by 1916, it had been destroyed. All that was left was a rough mound, which was the foundations of the of the windmill that the Germans had turned into a strong point. It overlooked the two German trenches that the Australians were trying to capture. And it is the iconic point on the the highest point on the battlefield, the iconic landmark. Uh, the diorama at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra depicts men fighting at Pozier, with, and you can see the windmill, the mound of the windmill, and the on the on the skyline behind them. Many, many, many photos that are taken in this area depict the windmill, uh, the rough mound that was the windmill. So, of course, it was an obvious place to become a memorial. And originally, after the war, Pete, it was the the second division that uh, that claimed it as a memorial because they were the ones that had captured it but i think since then it's 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 expanded somewhat in its uh in its commemoration and now is is fairly a, a fairly general australian memorial on yeah the it's, site. it's 
I think it's a very much a generic memorial. It was dis- decided uh, when uh, the divisions were deciding where they should put their memorials. I, I, and you can see the whole reason, really. It was felt like a bit overkill, even though it was such an important spot to have at one end of the village the first divisional memorial and at the other end of the village the second divisional memorial. And I think it was felt that because not just the second division had fought there, first divisional men will come back and fight there. The fourth divisional men will fight in the area because you get a good view down to Mukau Farm, Mucky Farm from uh, Mukay Farm, whichever you want to say it, uh, from the windmill site. And it was felt that this was a site that really should be more generic. Um, and so, yeah, it comes to represent... Um, it's supposed to look like a Roman shrine or the ruins of a Roman shrine. Um, and so you get these uh, little stubby pillars. A lot of people don't quite understand what it's supposed to be, but that's what it, it originally the concept was, to look like the ruins of a Roman shrine. And almost certainly there, there, this is a Roman road. There would have been shrines and forts. There's a, there is a fort nearer to Bapome on the left of the road where a, a, a big grain store has been built. They found a Roman fort there. So along this road... Uh, Roman legions would have marched and so this little shrine was felt that it would be nice to reproduce something that could have been here um, and to set it in the fields that the men fought and died all around uh, and I just like the whole concept of it I thought the whole idea is a, is a good idea uh, again go and have a look at the pictures in the war memorial and you'll see that there was a knocked out uh, tank on the on the road where the tank memorial is there was once a knocked out tank there in fact it's on its side um, also a lot of the original wooden memorials yes the second division built a memorial there but a lot of battalions and brigades put up their own memorials all around this landscape and they'll eventually all 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 be taken down some return to australia and form memorials uh, uh, at various locations, some are at the War Memorial. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, again, it, it's well worth digging into the pictures before you come out here if you're thinking of coming on a tour. Go and have a look at some of these uh, these these photographs of what the sites used to look, look like. Um, but, yeah, to me, the windmill, I, I could totally get the reason for the windmill being there, this memorial site sitting in this this open field la- uh, uh, landscape. So I used to love uh, going to the to the windmill. It's certainly worthwhile checking out the photographic evidence of the windmill site, Pete, because um, it's, it's, it's evolved so much. When you look at photos from obviously during the war and then immediately afterwards, 1917 was when the first memorials went up on the site at Pozier, and then immediately after the war and compare it how it is today. And even during the 70s and 80s, it's, it's changed quite dramatically. There were trees around it at one stage. There's a hedge around it now. There wasn't a hedge at one stage, but there were trees around it I've seen um, before. So it's... It's evolved a lot over time, so certainly a, a, an interesting exercise to, to look at photos of the windmill site, one of the most iconic for Australians on yeah. the Western Front, and fortunately has not been altered or affected in <laughs> any way whatsoever. It sits there pristine and unimpeded by anything at all. Is that a fair assessment, Pete? Now, we said we weren't going to rant today. We're, We're not, not going to rant. rant about the animal memorial that's okay, behind listen, it at gonna, all. I'm We're not going to mention it. I'm going to give some background to the dear <laughs> listeners. There is a new memorial that has been constructed next to the windmill site, and it would take a whole podcast for us to describe what's going on, Pete. The, the <laughs> fraud um, Involved, convictions, yeah. the... The desecration of sacred battlefield sites, the amateurishness of memorials, but we, we, we promised ourselves we wouldn't rant too much. But basically what has happened is, once again, some well-meaning yet completely misguided people have taken it upon themselves as a private enterprise that the village of Pozier is in need of more memorials and more commemoration 
So they are building their own private memorials. And in my opinion, they are destroying the battlefield, the wonderful battlefield of Pozier. Pozier has many wonderful memorials. It is as the men who came here after the war knew it, and it does not need anything else. Um, and yet this group of private individuals, they're Australians, they're trying to do the right thing, but they are building some absolutely disgusting and hideous memorials, um, which are amateurish and are an insult to the men who fought and died there, is the way I would sum it up. The worst of which is the animal memorial, a memorial to animals in war. Again, in and of itself, not a terrible sentiment, but they have built something which looks like... Uh, it is literally a collection of, of, of items from a, from a, a garden centre, terrible concrete cast sculptures it's absolutely awful it's an embarrassment and i will not be a happy man until i see it torn down yeah uh, i think that covers it very well um <laughs> i uh, uh i couldn't uh, uh disagree uh, or agree more um and to me it, there's a lack of understanding of what you know, if if you viewed that the windmill memorial wasn't enough then you have not read enough and understood what the Wimble Memorial was there for. It is, it is there to sit in that landscape uh, and for us to sit there on the windmill site knowing that the men are all around us and the cornfields and the uh, whatever else is growing, the potatoes around us uh, um, above the men that lie beneath. And, and, and to me, it was just that sanctity of the place and the simplicity, which was what was intended uh, that has been absolutely destroyed in the creation of the animal memorial and the and the ongoing kind of flower beds and trees and and benches and things that are ad hocly placed. Oh, I'm going to rant. I'm ranting. I'm going to stop. So so yeah, that's it. Anyway, we don't like it as you will have gathered. Yeah, we we said we wouldn't rant. We should shouldn't give it too hard a time. But and I I do want to be clear here that we're we're not just doing this you know for, for no reason. It it is that people are building and making constructions and planting trees and and changing the battlefield and the battlefield is designed as you said so eloquently Pete to be left for contemplation there's a memorial in the middle of it where you can stand and look out on the fields where Australians die and the idea that we would be planting lawns and trees over ground that we know there are Australians lying there um, and therefore in many ways even preventing in the future decent archaeological excavation if so required and etc 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 we, we don't Posier doesn't need anything these things should be ripped out and the battlefield should be left as as the men fought for, which was empty farm fields with crops growing in them every every season. Um, anyway, I think I think we did okay there, Pete. I think we we made our point very clear without ranting too much. But um, <laughs> go, I, look, if you're listening, this go jump online and see what the memorials are there. It's awful, and hopefully you will join us in hoping it gets torn down. But um, enough of that. Enough of that. Um, Posier are just a sacred site, Pete. One of the most important sites on the battlefield uh, on the battlefields for Australians. One of the handful of sites that is uh, so important to Australians and just, just means so much when you visit the ground and when you read about the First World War. Let's not forget that statistic, the most costly battle in Australian history. 23,000 men killed or wounded in six weeks of fighting. It's just a, it's just an incredible spot. And it's it's a great place to visit today, Pete. It is indeed. And... Uh... 
the whole of Poznan itself, everything that we've just covered, why I uh, enjoy walking through the village, around the village, there's lots of little tracks and lanes and things, so you can get on the battlefield. And so you've got everything that, that I suppose, somebody exploring the battlefield would would want to look at. You've got a, a battlefield, little bits of, a, of original sites to go and look at. You've got memorials. You have a, a series of cemeteries. Um, and you have that view, that view onto other parts of the of the battlefield. So it can also take you further. You can see um, High Wood from there, another place of terrible, terrible horror. You can look down to Moo Cow Farm. You can look to the Teetval Ridge and the Teetval Memorial. You can see down, you can even see all the way down to Albert and the Madonna and Child, um, uh, the Golden Madonna and Child, very famous in Albert. So, and looking in the other direction, you can see all the way to um, to Bapome uh, uh, on the ridge. So you get a great overview view of the of the fighting of 1916 in its entirety on the Somme battlefield from Poissier so a great place to visit it's a very special spot and like always we'd love to hear what you think about it have you been to Poissier have you walked that ground how did how did it have that effect on you what do you think of the Adam Memorial um please reach out to us we love hearing from everyone that's listening and we love to communicate with you so we're in all the usual places you can find us on Twitter and on a Facebook uh, Facebook uh, you can find us both individually and on the battle walks uh, pages Please reach out to us if you want to come and walk the ground with us. Don't forget, you can do that on many tours. So visit battlefields.com.au for that experience. Pete, like always, it's been an absolute pleasure. and I look forward to chatting to you again. Yeah, it's been great, Matt. Look forward to the next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.